0: 20 minutes for Q&A at the end, okay? And we'll basically stop when the time's run out, even if we haven't got through all the material, because I think it can be really helpful just to answer people's questions. Okay, so please be thinking about your questions and thinking about how you can formulate them as concisely as possible. And we'll try and answer a few of them at the end. So we're looking at raising sons and daughters, so hopefully you guys are in the right seminar. Um, we don't have any daughters, so I'm not sure how we managed to do this, but uh, these are our two sons. This is Rafe, who's four, and his big brother Finley, and um, Anna's sister's looking after them today. Um, my story is that a few years ago, I found myself in the position where I was leading the team that leads the church, and that was slightly unexpected, and I found that... As I began to lead the church, for the first couple of years, everything that I did desperately needed to be done. So everything I did got applauded, and it was like an extended honeymoon period, and it was wonderful. But having sort of got all the obvious stuff done, I kind of thought to myself, oh my word, am I gonna spend the next 20 years doing this? making sure the coffee's hot, (laughs) making sure the band is tight, making sure the slides are clear, making sure the small group leaders aren't in rebellion. And I I just thought to myself, I don't want to look back in 20 years time and be able to say all I managed was to pull those things off. And um, it really filled me with boredom, to be honest, the prospect, and, and a completely wasted life. I began to read the New Testament with new eyes, thinking, I'm now one of the people that's actually supposed to be leading this church. What, does the, what is the commission? What am I supposed to be doing? And I came across verses like when Paul says that his commission is to present everyone mature in Christ. And so I began to look at our services and think, Is our service aimed at presenting everyone mature in Christ or is it aimed at growth? Adding more rows to meetings where you get more and more people watching, fewer and fewer people doing. Or later on in Ephesians where it says that God gave these gifts to the church, prophets, pastors, evangelists, to equip saints for works of service. So it's not for me to do it all, but for me to equip other people to do it. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah.
0: Now, some of you might remember this uh, from science class, that all living things have these processes. Who remembers that? Okay, so it's familiar to some of you. And um, this is true of us as well, and it's also true of churches. I think there's one thing on that list which is slightly different from all the others, and you won't be surprised that it's reproduction. If I stop breathing, number two, respiration, I will die. If I stop moving, I will die because I can't get food. If, I, if, if a baby never grows, they're going to die, etc., etc. If we don't attend to our nutrition, we're going to die. But if I don't reproduce myself, I can still live to a ripe old age, can't I? I could actually go through my whole life without reproducing a child. And my generation would not be harmed. But the species would go extinct. Churches, can afford to take their eye off the ball for one generation because it doesn't hurt them if they don't reproduce do we understand that that's terrifying isn't it and i think as churches we've sometimes fallen guilty of that so i just want to sort of pass on with my wife as much passion as we can for us doing the things that we truly are called to do, i.e. presenting people mature in Christ, equipping saints for works of service, making disciples of all believers, and not worrying too much about whether the band is tight and the coffee is hot, unless those things help us reproduce. Does that make sense? My wife is the prophetic one amongst us, and um, she's been feeling God speak to her for a few years, so she's just gonna explain that to us. Now, do you want me to do it?
2: So I want to begin by asking a question. Can the people at the back hear me? I've got no, My kind of? No, speak up. Okay. Asking the question of if we had revival, because we've got a prayer walk at the moment that's basically praying about revival. If we had revival in our churches, would we cope and I think that, um, in our church particularly, I don't think we would cope that well, to be honest. Um, and I just want to share what I felt like God has a couple of years ago put on my heart, um, and hopefully pass that on to you. Um, yeah, so if, if revival happened in the way that we, we see in acts, where every day you know, God is adding to numbers, you know, would, we, would, we, would we cope with that? Yeah, okay. point made. Um, Can we go to the next slide?
0: Okay, so this is a clip from YouTube. 30 seconds, and then Anna's going to explain it to us.
1: (laughs) Check out how high these different balls bounce. The basketball, the super bouncy ball, and the golf ball. Now I'm going to try the golf ball on top of the bouncy ball on top of the basketball. And then I'm going to explain how it's rolling into a supernova. (laughs) not so here it is again the golf ball bounced to 28 feet we dropped it from about three and a half feet so it went
2: up 800 percent of its dropped height in- okay i am a scientist god likes to speak to me in ways i love and understand so this is how i saw it okay so i felt like the bounced um, individually bounced basketball and um, bouncy ball represented previous movements of god but then What he was going to do was the golf ball. So it's basically he was going to do something that we've never seen before, never experienced before. It is unprecedented in in our experience. And so I just felt God say, get ready and be prepared for this. Um, And then at a similar time, I find that God um, sometimes repeats himself. Um, to sort of bring home a point, and at a similar time, then I felt him speech me about this. Um, we went to Norfolk um, crabbing. And we, um, my sons, um, went out one day. And I think it was low tide, and we spent a long time trying to catch a single crab. And I think after about 45 minutes, we caught one very, very skinny, geriatric-looking crab. And we tried lots of different methods of, dip, ba- you know, bacon as bait or whatever, and just nothing was happening at all. Um, then we read on Google that you know if you go high tide, things will be a bit different. So we went back got high tide, and I think within five minutes, we had the crab um, bucket in the water, and the boys literally pulled out the bucket, um, and this, th- th- so many crabs were inside the bucket that they were falling out, and in that moment, I felt God say, the tide is turning, and there's going to become a point where you, even your children are going to be bringing bucket loads, so I felt like God twice saying, get ready for and prepare for something unprecedented something bigger than you've ever seen or experienced or i uh, gonna be able to imagine get prepared for it happening in your lifetime I believe we are gonna see this um, and and soon whatever is soon in God's mind but I feel like it's gonna happen soon and so we need to um, get ready for that um, so I think the two questions Daniel and I often ask ourselves is, what is God saying to us? What are we going to do about it? So I felt like God is saying, A revival is coming. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are we going to do about it? And this is where discipleship and raising sons and daughters comes in. Because if we do have, like in Acts, where daily people are adding to our number you know are we going to be able to look after all of these people who are coming into our church or are they going to be orphans they will need to have mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters looking after them and so discipleship how i see that is it's like a net You know, a fishing net has many knots, and they're all connected by strings to many other knots. And that makes a fishing net. Um, And so I feel like that's in discipleship. We need to be connected to other people. And that's how we're going to be able to keep all of our converts um, together and not lose them. and I think that, you know, in, in Luke, it talks about the fact that Jesus, you know, they were fishing, 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 caught nothing. Then he says, put your fish, your um, your net on the other side. Um, and then they brought in a haul that they couldn't even bring in. If we are going to get this, you know, a haul that we can't even bring in, our fishing net needs to be strong. Our connections with one another need to be strong because Daniel is an elder at our church. and. What, what we need to not happen is for thousands of people coming into our church and for everyone to think that the elders are going to look after them, because it's just not going to be possible. This is something that everyone really needs to own for themselves, because it can't, can't all be on the eldership team. Um, so that's the take home there is, I, I feel like, Revival is coming. Um, it's, it's something that we all need to be involved in. But some of that actually scares me, because I'm like, OK, we've got all of these people that we need to disciple and look after and make sure they're not orphans or whatever. But I've still got 24 hours in my day. You know, How am I going to do all of this? Um, so what we really want to sort of impress upon you is it's not about adding to our day. It's about sharing it. And so Daniel's going to continue that.
0: So one of, the, one of the things I think we've done is we've made our Christian life a little bit um, artificial. If we consider the prospect of loads and loads of new people coming to church, or even just the people that are in church at the moment being sons and daughters, you can feel like, wow, I'm already busy. I'm already busy and I'm not even doing that, let alone trying to also do that. So, um, I think we have contexts like Sunday mornings and small groups where you get a sermon, a sage on the stage telling you, but um, do we have parents? Like, just ask yourself, honestly, do you think there are people in your church you could genuinely call my mum and dad? So, I just want to talk about a loaf of bread and what it can teach us about our lives. So I bought this last night at Sainsbury's, the cheapest white loaf of bread that they sell. And what we've done is we've taken an amazing product, wheat, and we've stripped it of all its nutrition and made bread out of it, which is no longer food. And then, and then have the goal to have advertising on it that says, with vitamins, with fiber, added fiber, added vitamins. We've artificially taken it out and artificially put it back in. So what we've done with our Christian life is we've said, I I know the Bible talks about getting together, so we get together on a Sunday morning, but we also need to do some youth work that's specialist, so we do that on a Sunday night. But I also want to evangelize, so I do Alpha, but Alpha happens on Monday night, but I also want to send my kids to their kids' program, so that happens on a Tuesday night, and my wife wants to meet with people, and that's not in an evening, so she does that on a Wednesday morning, but I'm discipling some men in the church, so I do that on a Thursday night. Blah, blah, blah. We've artificially separated evangelism from discipleship. We've artificially separated pastoral ministry from discipleship or from evangelism. And we've taken one age group and taken them away from another age group. So we have unsustainable (laughs) Christian lives. You cannot survive on this stuff for very long. Although there's a nice hit at the beginning. You cannot survive on it. So we need to change the way we do our lives. We need to try and do it more naturally. So one thing we've done as a couple, because we're really trying to assess every area of church life. Here's the budget. Does the budget make disciples? Does the budget produce maturity? Here's a Sunday service. Does it produce maturity? Here's an eldership team. Do they produce maturity? We are asking these questions. Our lives, does our lives produce maturity. So we looked at our life and we thought we cannot add anything extra to what we're doing. But what we are already doing, we can share. So we have just decided on, on Tuesday nights, we have to have a meal because we're humans. We're always gonna invite people to those Tuesday night meals. We haven't added anything extra because we were gonna be eating anyway. So that's just a very natural thing that we've done. But we've also found that if you take your eye off the ball for a second, inertia creeps back in so we're having to work hard at getting that back up and running we need to find natural ways to make this happen now if you've got a balloon on your seat i just want you to take that balloon and to blow it up and tie a knot in it okay because i want to talk about multiplication it's only the first four rows so don't worry if you're further back (laughs) Okay, here's a question for you. Should a pastor simply pastor? Or should, don't don't blow them too much. Or should they raise pastors? Okay, Leon. Leon, can you come up here? Can you come up here real quick? Give Leon a round of applause. He's our pastor. Okay, what I want to talk about is multiplication rather than addition. We have an addition mentality to church. Let's add another service, let's add another room, let's add another row of seats. We need to multiply elders, multiply leaders, multiply churches. So Leon, perhaps a friend of mine, is a pastor and he has a pastoral gift. And under the old way of thinking about church, we do this, your balloon, is your pastoral problem. Everybody's got a pastoral problem. <coughs> well, <laughs> just <got it> <laughs> come and give your pastoral problem to Leon. Come and give your pastoral problem to Leon, okay? You have to be carrying them. <laughs> okay, sit down, we've made that point, sit down. Thanks. The point is, he cannot do it. If you keep adding to his workload, it will break. Now He might be superhuman and have a really high workload, but it will still break at some point. Leon should be spending up to 75% of his time raising other pastors. If Leon stood in front of you and said, don't bring your problem to me, bring your problem to the pastoral person that you know and you are relationally connected to because I have equipped those people, that can be reproducible, can't it? That can be scalable. I did a a little maths thing which was, if we had Adrian Holloway in our church adding a 1,000 people to the church every week, It would take about 15 or 16 years for us, if we were all individually in the church adding one person a week, in 15 years, we would overtake him and that would be exponential. So, but for 15 years, Adrian Holloway adding people to our church looks better. And I think sometimes, I mean, the obvious thing is you do both because God gives gifts to the church, doesn't he? You use your evangelists and you equip your people for evangelism. What it's done for us as an eldership team is we've looked at our eldership team and we've said, does this eldership team produce maturity? In some ways it does and in some ways it doesn't. One of the things we could do is we could begin aggressively, assertively, passionately raising future elders. And so we identified 10 people, we asked them to participate in a three year process, there's no, pro- no promises, you're exploring eldership, we're exploring it, a really high bar, I know you're busy, but you're not gonna get any less busy, you have to count the cost, spend time with them, develop them over the long haul, and when that's finished, the next intake will come. And if we could be giving those guys away, as well as using them in our church, we will be absolutely delighted. Paul talks about the things you have heard from me, that's one generation, or the things things that you have heard from me, that's two generations, entrust to reliable people, that's the third generation, who will be able to qualify, teach uh, people who will also be qualified to teach others. So there's four generations of multiplication in that verse. Paul, Timothy, the people he's teaching so that they can teach others? Do we do church like this? That's what balloons have taught us about multiplication. We need to raise sons and daughters. Who raise sons and daughters? Anna's going to talk to us now about... Is that Adrian in the back? No, okay. I just didn't want to make Adrian to think I'd slagged him off i love adrian and it's going to talk to us about walking with people rather than just talking to them
2: so i think it's good to reflect on ourselves and our lives and our church Um, and here's another good question what is the weakest aspect of our disciple making effort so I don't know if you would think of this question for yourself what answer you would come up with 1 Corinthians 11, 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So walk with me. I'm not just going to talk to you, walk with me. That's what Jesus did. He didn't say, you know, I'm just going to talk to you, but you're not going to experience any of my life. It was, you know, come alongside me in my everyday, in my day-to-day, live life with me as I eat, as I do all of these mundane things. Be with me. Um, so I. Here, I find this quite a helpful, these different circles. This is different um, types of teaching methods. So, there's the apprenticeship, there's classroom, <laughs> and there's immersion. <laughs> and I would say that church is mainly classroom. So, in, in my own personal life, um, I, until the age of 16, um, we grew up uh, travelling abroad. So, every three and a half years, we moved country. Um, and what I noticed with my parents was, what they could do is they um, if we went to we went to Belgium for example and then Nepal, um, they could go and get out their little book and they could teach themselves Nepalese or Flemish or whatever, and they could go to evening classes and that was the classroom style. Um, then they could find someone who maybe was Belgian and be like, tell me about your culture, tell me about you know the little quirks or whatever. Um, and they could have that one to one sort of apprenticeship from them preparing them for what was to come when we actually actually did move. But then, what was really important in all of that is obviously being immersed in the culture. And I think that they say, well, you know, with languages, with learning, is one thing to be taught it in, in a classroom, but it's another thing to be immersed in the culture and you hear the dialects and people pick up languages much, much more quickly. So you need to have all of these different aspects. Um, Dana said that, you know, prophetic is something that is really on my heart. Um, I remember when I first sort of uh, got excited about the prophetic I, I we were trying to count how many books I had but I probably read about 50 books on the prophetic so there was a lot of head knowledge going on there but it can't stay head knowledge can it it's got to move from just having a lot of knowledge about you know the prophetic and um, then a lady a wonderful lady called Angela Kem. I don't know if anyone knows her she mm-hmm. came alongside me and she said Anna come walk with me and so um, she she's I spent a lot of time with her and we've had you know she's she's now Actually, going to all of these events all around the world. Actually, um, teaching and preaching, but a lot of that time is actually spent travelling. So she spends, you know, two, two and a half hours traveling to these events, so she said, come with me. And I think those times in the car where I've picked her brains and I've asked her, they've been so valuable for me, and also the debriefing afterwards. And so she's gonna drive there anyway, she's going to have to get there anyway, so she's just using that time as not sort of dead empty space, but she's discipling me in the process. And I found that that really helped me to grow because I, I was able to ask her lots of questions. But then another thing that she did was she's just immersed me in sort of the culture of, you know, being around lots of other prophetic people and being in an environment where she's like, right Anna, go and do it now. You know, you've got three seconds, go and ask God for something for them. And so she's she's sort of helped chuck me in the deep end with it. But she's immersed me in the culture where I'm like, okay, I can learn from people's mistakes and I can ask questions and I can hear the language people use and I can work out, you know, what how how am I shaped in it all and so I found I've grown so much because I've had, um, I'm not grown so much but I've grown, um, because I had all of these areas and because people have been intentional about actually investing in me and sharing their lives with me. Um, so we need to raise sons and daughters who know, um, know it in their head, so it's got to be in your head. Um, and that's the theory, um, but also in your heart, the experience, the practice of it.
0: So let me just dwell on that for a second because this really struck me between the eyes. When I thought about the fact that what you need to learn is you need all three, you need to be in the sweet spot. And so we did an assessment of all the processes in church life and found that like a lot Easily the majority were classroom contexts. You don't get to answer back, you don't really get to ask questions, you sit and listen. And that's that's inevitable in big groups. But this, this was not happening brilliantly because we over-segregated people. You know, like, oh, you want to do evan- you want to do prophetic stuff? Well, go and hang out with these two people over here who are also prophetic. Well, that's not enough to be immersive. It's beginning to be immersive, but it's not enough. Um, or we want our kids to be discipled in Christ, but we're taking them away from all the mature disciples, and they're now hanging around with each other, and they're just having fun, which is great, but it's not producing maturity necessarily. Does that make sense? So we had we have to have a kind of a ruthless um, look at how this all works. This this led us to stop a two million pound building project because we thought the result of this two million pound building project is a shinier building for people to be in for a couple of hours a week. If this community even had two million pounds, which we didn't, if we had two million pounds, would we deploy this in terms of discipleship for two hours on a Sunday morning? We wouldn't, would we? So it's not... It's not just, oh, this is a nice idea, or that's a helpful way of thinking. It's like, what is God saying to you? What are you going to do about it? The other thing is that it has to be personal. You cannot phone it in. If we want gracious, Christ-formed disciples that we know and love and can predict... We've got to get up close to them. Paul said, you know how I lived. I found myself on stage one day preaching at City Church, Cambridge to 350 people. You know how I lived. And I thought to myself, that's not even true. There's no way that these 350 people know how I live. They know how I live on a Sunday morning when I've got my ironed shirt on and my sermon notes. They don't know what, how I live when I've got road rage or when um, we've gone overdrawn or when I just want the kids to go to sleep and then they're, they're opposing my godliness. <laughs> so we've begun to think about it in terms of this simple formula, powerful lives added a shared life plus being able to talk clearly about what you're doing equals maximum impact. If you don't have powerful lives, i.e. if you're not living godly Christian lives, then don't bother. I mean, Paul said, you know how I lived amongst you. That was a good thing because I live a godly life. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We need to be able to say that to people. We can't be ashamed of the lives we're living So for integrity's sake, we need transparency. So you're saying, this is genuinely what we do with our money. This is genuinely what we do with this parental situation. And you know that because you're close enough to see it. Does that make sense? I can remember being an experience where I Skyped. I sent a message I was away from home and I sent a message on my phone, video back to the boys, and someone said to me, I was traveling with this person, is that how you speak to your children? I said, yeah, of course it's how I speak to my children. How do you speak to your children? I don't really speak to my children. What? A senior church leader who can't actually express their love for their own children. But if they hadn't been close enough to me at that moment to see this is normal parenting, what I'm doing is different. And they they spotted that. Does that make sense? I wasn't trying to teach them anything, I was just talking to my kids. But you have to let people in. One of the things we do is we just try and drop things into conversation and into sermons all the time. When we had two young children and I was beginning to lead the church, I found it very difficult. Our children wouldn't sleep. And so I can remember on a Sunday morning saying, I'm so grateful to God that the two of us are together that you know I really want to commend single parents because I've found in the middle of the night sometimes I'm actually so on the edge of hurting my child that I have I have to give them to my wife. And that's happened to me once or twice. I didn't I didn't hurt them, but I I could see that it was a possibility. I said that on a Sunday morning service, and someone at the back brother had just killed his own child. And the whole family was struggling to understand how that could even be possible. And so he was able to come and talk to me and saying, I cannot believe you've just said that from the stage. Is that really how you feel? Is there such a thing as that? Yes, there is. <laughs> it's you know, sleep deprivation over a long, long time. It takes different people to different places. But if I hadn't been honest about my failures, they wouldn't have had permission to talk to me about that. We've talked about financial difficulties, we've talked about financial successes, we've talked about inter-family difficulties, inter-family successes, or parenting, or even our relationship. So you're giving people permission to say, all right, and I can feel like there's just more integrity in my leadership because I'm not just preaching a lecture, I'm talking to you about how this affects my life. So if you feel like, yeah, we we are beginning to, to live a slightly more powerful life, we are growing, but actually that's not being shared with anybody, you must do that second bit. You can't do it with 350 people, but you don't need to do it with 350 people because everyone will be doing it. We need to raise sons and daughters who truly know why we live our lives the way we do. One, one of my wife's glory stories, she worked for, the, for Cambridge University, and uh, she worked at the Brain Repair Centre, and so very, very um, doctors and PhDs, um, and you know it's a tough environment to be a Christian it's a tough environment to say yes I believe Jesus rose from the dead so basically there's no there's no sympathy for that at all but then one of her colleagues was getting married and the husband the prospective husband was giving some money to charity and this woman just couldn't couldn't live with it you know we can't afford to give that money how much was it
2: 50 pounds,
0: 50 pounds a month okay no that's a major problem that is a major problem I'm not sure I should marry this guy he's reckless so anna said well this is how much we give the whole department falls silent they can argue with you about whether jesus rose from the dead but they can't argue with you with how you live your life and peter said live such lives before men that they ask you give an explanation for what it is you know because anna said we give that money she had a platform to talk about jesus But if she was trying to do an apologetic about the resurrection, just shut up, no one's interested. But it's not just true of non-Christians, it's true of Christians. I know, I've been a Christian long enough to know that there are some areas, Christians are streets ahead and in other areas, they've got huge blind spots.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. I once had the experience where someone wrote a check for the church for tens of thousands of pounds Glorious generosity. A Couple of weeks later, I asked them to give someone a lift 10 minutes out of their way, and they refused. That's just unfair. You cannot ask me to do that. That's really inconvenient. Wow. (laughs) This this Christian has got breakthrough in this area, but they, they haven't in that area. And so have I. So have I. And so have you. We need to go from just creating a cozy environment, which is the way churches can go if they're not careful. Comfier seats, better coffee, better preachers, less challenging sermons, and because of the size of the group, total anonymity, anonymity. I I like coming to this church, I don't have to speak to anyone. What? We've created a church where people are attracted because they don't speak to anyone. But that is what's happening if we're not careful. In a a big city like London, coming from the provinces, because we come from Cambridge, it's like, you're instantly anonymous. There's loads of people here, but they don't know me. It's as if they don't exist. Jesus made disciples by saying, Um, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So a really big invitation into relationship. Follow me. In fact, he chose 12 disciples and he said, come and live every single day with me. Three years they lived like that. But it was a challenge. I will make you fishers of men. Don't come follow me, I will make your life easy. Jesus is so resistant to that, you have to be blind if you read the New Testament and get that message. I can remember there was a, 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 someone who was a seeker in our church and he said, I want to come and talk to you about Jesus, so we went out for a meal, I sat down and he talked for about half an hour and I said, look, here's what Jesus offers you. What? Death. Pain. Loss. Take up your cross. Jesus never promises you an, evil, an easy life, yeah? It's glorious, because of the gospel, but you cannot come into this new life holding to all the safety nets of the old life. And Jesus never ever gave us that option. So we've been using this from 3DM to really uh, help us process where we are. Churches that have really high relationship but no challenge are cozy. You can call that a chaplaincy. In a hospital, people are already experiencing some stress. So all chaplains do is care for, they lavish love, they soothe, and that's appropriate in a hospital, but it's not appropriate in a church. If you have no challenge and no friendship, that's just boring, And, and lots of churches are like that. Come along, we don't really ask anything of you, and we don't really offer anything, is that okay?
1: <laughs>
0: Sometimes these things exist in the same church. The 80% are over here, and the 20% are over here. Massive challenge. You're on every rotor, there's no relationship because no one's got any time for it. So you're just constantly stressed. Now it's rare for a whole church to be there, but it's pretty common for half of some of the church to be there, some of the church to be there. What Jesus did was up here, relationship, come follow me, but I will make you fishers of men. A friend of mine came around to me and he said, I'm really struggling. He's a massively intellectual person. He writes for a living, got first from Oxford, blah, blah, blah. And he said, uh, every, time I read, every time I read a blog, uh, my opinion changes. I read about 50 blogs a day. It's just doing my head in. I said, my friend, you are a narcissist. You have to know what everyone else is thinking. We, we walk by faith. And you need to choose to get some convictions based on what you believe and not what other people think. And I had enough relationship to say that, without fear of losing the relationship. And he constantly goes back to it as the moment things changed. I couldn't stand up to him intellectually. But I could say, "You, all you're trying to do is keep up with everybody. And you cannot keep up with everybody, especially on issues of the heart that you're building your life on. You're going to go mad. Do you believe the Bible or don't you? And he, I, I honestly, I mean I said he's a narcissist and um, I was right. He really did it in order to always be the smartest person in the room, always know more about that pin- opinion than anybody else, always to have more answers or to have read more people in that camp than anybody else. But what's the point of that? And he, he was really, really suffering. We've got friends who've come around to us and say, we're thinking of having another child. We want you to challenge it. Is this sensible? No. I mean, financially, no. From a relational point of view, no. From your capacity, no. This doesn't make any sense. Well, we want to do it. That's fine. You know, we're not going to tell you whether you can have children or not. You've asked us to challenge it, so we're going to <coughs> sit here for half an hour and challenge it as much as we can so that you go away with a sense of reality and peace, does that make sense? That's invited, they asked us to do that. I would never talk to people about their children unless they asked us. <laughs> <laughs> if, if, if you were to plot you and your experience of your church currently here, would you be here, down here? Would you be here in the stress zone? Just try and plot yourself and then think, what would it take for me to move up into this quadrant? So I can remember things where we're saying, well, there's a, there's a person that we re- ne- really needs challenging, but we don't have the relationship to challenge them, so that's the first thing we've got to do. So let's take six months of building relationship with those people so that we get to them. So you can do that before you do that, but if you don't think about it and make decisions, not going to happen. We need to raise sons and daughters who know what it means to be loved. The Bible says nobody likes discipline. At the time it happens, it's painful, but it produces a harvest of righteousness. So we need to, people in our church, I can remember us changing a particular aspect of church, and someone saying to me. You're supposed to be making Christianity easier, not harder. And I was like, that is not what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah, let's just, let's just be honest about that. We want big people, not big church. Big church is fine if it's a result of big people. A lot of this practical stuff we got from building a discipleship culture with Mike Breen, Paul McConaughey, I went out to the States and spent a week just living in Paul McConaughey's house to see if it was true, and it is. Total Church by Chester and Timmis is also another excellent way just to reassess your church and what you should be doing. Now, theologically, my position has not changed. I just think, practically, we've been applying that theology ineffectively. So... I'm still committed to church. I'm still committed to growing church. I want to grow the church through multiplication, if I'm honest. I want to raise raise up elders, raise up preachers, raise up worship leaders, raise up trustees, raise up mothers and fathers, raise up children's workers and give them away so they can plant churches. And that's what the trajectory we're on at the moment. So our two million pound building project became a 500,000 pound extension, which we did for cash, no mortgage. The other option was 30 years of mortgage. And it means that the next gift day, we don't have to say, come and pay for this building that we're already using for two hours a week. Come and pay for a church plant. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Wow. You guys have done so well. We've had to shout because of the the room. I hope that hasn't felt aggressive to you. Um, (laughs) ah! (laughs) Um, And we've had to move quickly and we've had to be really practical. But I've found that actually our churches tend to be pretty well grounded in theology and just need some help with application and implications of it so let's take some time for questions we've got 10 minutes has anybody got a question for me or for my wife
1: um, we've got um a couple
2: especially in our church who we've tried to build a relationship with and that's gone quite well but trying to get the challenge in Mm -hmm. they're not receptive Mm -hmm. what can we do as the disciples Mm -hmm. to encourage a culture of accepting
0: challenge okay so they've built relationship with someone but they're finding that this these people aren't so open to the challenge is (coughs) there anything we can say to help one thing is that that question is a far more interesting question than how do we make the coffee hot. So this is the sort of question that elders need to be on their knees praying about, that churches need to be praying about, that this, you know tr- trustees need to be solving, not the how hot is the coffee question. That's fine for hospitality, but this is a critical question. And I would say we just need to wake up to the reality that the churches that we think are here in maturity are actually here. Okay, so I would just say, if you think you're thinking of those people on a spectrum from just born again to perfection, one to ten, you're hoping that there are five, but this is telling you that they're at one. So make your challenge, slow down, make your challenge one that they can hear, and go at the pace that they're growing at. <coughs> And look for people of peace. That means people that are drawing from you. Some people are just resistant to me. Anything I say is anathema to them. There are other people where I can say anything and they will get some gospel truth out of it. It's weird, isn't it? But we'll all have those people in our lives. These people are people of peace. They are growing and growing. And I would say, We've changed our preaching, so now we don't preach to the alpha convert, we preach to the person who's reading their Bible daily, praying, giving, going after God. We do that in a way that everyone can understand it, but if I take their spirituality seriously, they will take themselves seriously. You do have to pitch it to the individual, so I think you guys need to just kind of go, well, we've tried that, but that's told us that they're not where we think they are. Let's try and rewind that a bit.
1: Um, I've really appreciated the seminar, it's been very insightful. Um question I to do if you are looking at how you share your lives with the Holy Spirit, practically how did that you know, how how was that first decision about Tuesday evening dinner? I think mean, that's you know you, you might be, well, I might be you know, a bit burnt out, okay, so mm-hmm. then sort of recess, which I think mm-hmm. this, this send has really helped. So it's, not concise, but yeah, yeah. It's, that, it's that change where you say, okay, I want to then look at my relationships I so have, how, how do I share that? How did you go on that change?
0: Why don't you talk about Paul's intentionality and how you Um,
2: We recently spent um, a couple of days each with this guy, Paul McConaughey, who Daniel's mentioned. Um, and I think one of the things that really struck me was he was just intentional. They, they, as a family, just sat down and made priority lists and decided what was important to them, what was not important, um, how much time did they want to spend. Because I think a lot of the time we spend a lot of our time on things that really don't matter, and the things that really do matter somehow get put on back burner, and so. What I was just really struck with them was just they were intentional. They didn't sort of assume that things would come together and that you know that they would freestyle it and it would all you know happen. They really thought about it as a family. They really listened um, and then they made a plan and then they stuck to that plan and then they reassessed that plan and said you know is this working for everyone here? Um, in the areas that it wasn't, how can we change? What can we do better? So. Um, for us, you know, we, evening meals is, has worked for us for, for a certain period, but actually we're at a stage where we're also quite tired in the evening. So it might be that we have to, What well, I really like, I'm a massive fan of breakfast, so I prefer to go and be like, okay, Saturdays, let's go and change our evenings because I'm just tired. Um, and people aren't seeing the best of us, and I just don't really. I'm an introvert. So I don't really, you know. By the time evenings there, I've spent all day with kids and everything. I'm like, I just have nothing to say to anyone. So the best part of me is in the morning. So I think it's it's knowing your strengths and weaknesses, and being intentional, and and being willing to change and reassess, but not thinking that things are just going to happen. Um,
0: I think you yeah. need to have a reason. My reason was. I don't want to do this for 20 years because it's not going to be fruitful. So you need to have that moment of why would I reconsider this, and what does it mean to reconsider it? I'm going to I'm going to move on just because there's a few hands up. Yeah. Um, Blue check uh, We are starting a church in Covenant in September this year, and uh, the thing we're directly uh, struggling with is uh, uh, God says He's going to be And then uh, the question directly raises what's the new thing. And I believe one of uh, the new things is uh, we don't want to be cozy and, and, uh, or boring, but we really want uh, to have this uh, discipleship uh, mindset and challenge and relationship, which is really important. Um, but uh, how, how did you implement that uh, in terms, did you show the 3DM future? picture? Guys,
1: great relationship, we
0: don't challenge we're not going to get there. Or What did you do? I think. Um, how do you change the culture of a church to one that's more challenging? <coughs> if you have a predominantly pastoral culture and you want it to become a predominantly missional culture, or a predominantly pastoral culture and you want it to become predominantly disciple-making. That is a five, six, ten-year process, and it starts in the heart of the leaders who are going to take you through that process. So I would say, the penny began to drop, and even just personally for me, I've been on a journey for four or five years where I'm thinking, we need to do things differently. That's internal. Now I've got to take my elders with me, so I need to take I need to take them through this process. Now we need to try and take the church, and it takes long time. We did a whole year of vision last year. Every Sunday we were talking about family of disciples on mission through multiplication. Family of disciples on mission through multiplication 53 times last year. And people still don't really. But that's fine. I totally get it. It takes time. But the instant you start to do it, you are doing it. Okay? So you can think, we want to be like St. Thomas Crooks in Sheffield, which is making disciples really effectively. And we're over here, nowhere, St. Nowhere's from Nowheresville Church. This, this, you know, you think we need to be there before it starts. No, the second you have that conviction, it has started. So the discipling of your church has begun already because it's in your head and in your heart. So don't, don't take people faster than they can be taken. The point is to present them mature in Christ, not to stress them out, or overwhelm them, or tell them off. Somehow, because he was perfect, Jesus was able to say to Peter, get behind me, Satan. I mean, the the challenges that Jesus brings to Peter, he knows Peter can take it. He knows that there's a type of relationship there where he can say that and Peter isn't gonna leave. And then there's the moments where, get behind me, Satan, followed by, do you love me? Feed my sheep, commissioning. So I would say expect a long journey, but if it's in from the start, that would be great. It's not about challenging people, it's about maturity. And if challenge is what they need, you must give them challenge. But the goal is maturity. And if this isn't totally gospel-centered, then it will fail and it will be non-Christian. You have to have a daily rejoicing in the gospel. Paul says, Corinthians 15, I want to remind you of the gospel in which you stand. 15 chapters into a letter to church of Christians. We rejoice in the gospel
1: daily.